Uh, if you're a Christian, uh, you've been to church at least a, a number of times, you'll have heard many, many times uh, the minister or a youth worker or a children's worker speak to you about what Jesus has done for you. Okay, we're time and time again, we, we talk about the cross, about Jesus dying for us, about raising from the de- him raising from the dead to rescue us. And we look back with thanksgiving about everything he's done for us. But if I was to ask you, what's Jesus doing now? What would you say? Children, if you think about it, what, what is Jesus doing now? We know where he is, he's in heaven, but what's he doing? Matthew 10, the passage we just read, just begins to give us some clues about what Jesus is continuing to do now, and therefore how we can be involved in his work. Uh, if you are a Christian, I take it you, you want not just to sort of believe in Jesus, so that you've got a get into heaven card when you die, but rather you want to be involved in what he's doing now on earth. Uh, Matthew 10 just sets us up for the pattern, I suppose, of what Jesus is doing nowadays. Uh, but it's not the easiest passage in the world to, to apply to ourselves. We're used to, as Christians, we're used to reading the Bible and sometimes just instinctively knowing which commands we're meant to obey and, and which, well, aren't quite for us. So, for example, we read Paul say, pray continually, and we, and we think, right, I should pray lots. But there are some commands in the Bible that, well, we, we just instinctively don't obey immediately. So let, let me read you some commands given in the Bible. Children, I wonder if you can recognise some of these. So here's one command from Genesis 6. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, who do you think that command was given? Make yourself an ark. Who had to make an ark? Well, nearly... Not Abraham. Not Abraham. Noah, in the middle. Well done. Noah. Noah. Brilliant. Noah. See, that command was given to Noah. I think no Christian in the history of the church has read their Bible one morning, Genesis 6, and thought, right, I should go and make an ark. No, we understand that that was a command just to Noah. Uh, here's another one. Good one for you, Isaac. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake your food in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. There's a command. Your excrement is excrement's poo. Okay. Bake your food over a fire of poo. That's a command in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to do that. But we sort of know instinctively it's not a command for all of us, don't we? No one has ever put that one directly into practice. Well, it's a pretty sort of easy example, I guess. But when you look at a passage like Matthew 10, it is just, well, it's just trickier. So, for example, think about missionaries. Uh, missionaries are people who are sent out to uh, tell the world about uh, Christ and his gospel. Uh, should mis- missionaries be paid? Look at verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics or sandals or a staff. Is it wrong for missionaries to take a bag or a spare pair of shoes? I've got a friend who's a missionary in Madagascar. Uh, I texted him in midweek. I was doing this passage. Uh, I told him I'm doing this passage on Sunday. Uh, what do you do with this? You know, should I cancel my standing order to you? Okay. Should I stop giving to you? Should you just be living off uh, the, the, uh, uh, the work? Should you be provided for those who are in situ in Madagascar where he is? Is it wrong to give support? Is it wrong to pack a bag? Is it... It's not immediately straightforward to see how this passage applies to us nowadays. So what I want to do is walk through it and ask five questions. And the five questions we're going to ask twice, once to understand what's going on and once to understand well, what it means to us today. So let's just dive in uh, and get going. The first question is, who's this, who's this mission for? 
Okay, who is undertaking this mission? Look down at chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called to him the 12 disciples. Jesus called to him the 12 disciples. Now, instantly we might think, hey, I'm a disciple too. A disciple children is somebody who learns from Jesus. That's what a disciple means. Now, we all learn from Jesus. So perhaps this, this mission is going to be for all of us. But look how the, the story goes on. Matthew says in verse 2, the names of the 12 disciples are these. Except that's not quite what he says, is it? Do you see chapter 10, verse 2? He doesn't say these are the names of the 12 disciples. He says these are the names of the 12 apostles. It's the same group, but they've got a new name. They've moved from being disciples, which is followers of Jesus, to apostles. Now, apostles are a particular group of people who are given special authority. In fact, Jesus is going to do that. He's going to give them his authority, as he says in verse 1. These 12, when we get their names, they're a pretty disparate group. We've got fishermen, we've got tax collectors, uh, we've got Simon the Zealot in verse 4, likely a kind of revolutionary, someone who's trying to throw off the Roman government. We've got Judas, who's going to betray him. But these 12 are the 12 who get particular authority to speak in Jesus' name. In that sense, they're a bit like ambassadors. If England wants to declare war on France or something... Or, or warn France, you know, unless you do this, we're going to we declare war. It's not up to just any old citizen to go over to France and speak in the name of the Queen, is it? Uh, only the ambassador can go and speak to the French president and say, this is what the UK thinks. This is what Her Majesty thinks. Only the ambassador has the authority to speak in the Queen's name. Well, likewise, only the apostles, these 12, and then Paul is added in later. So, but only these 12 at this stage have the authority to say, this is what Jesus says. Uh, to be an apostle in this sense of the word, uh, you had to have well, a handful of qualifications. You had to have been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And you had to have seen him raised from the dead. Uh, that's why, the, if you like, the first qualification for being an apostle uh, now, if you were to meet someone who claims to be an apostle, is are they at least 2,000 years old? If they're not at least 2,000 years old, they're not an apostle. Not in this sense. So this mission is given not to everybody who's following Jesus, not to all his disciples, because we've seen earlier in Matthew's Gospel, there's huge crowds following him, but rather to the 12 named individuals. And Matthew, in fact, all the Gospels are very keen we know who these people are. That's why the names are given, so that the church would know these are the 12 who can speak authoritatively in Jesus' name. So that's who's conducting the mission. Where are they to go? Well, look at verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them... Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, there's a very small area these apostles are sent to this time, and it is simply Israel, okay, the, the Jewish people. Very likely, actually, just the sort of ones up in the north in Galilee where Jesus was ministering. Because the, the disciples are told, don't go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are just anyone who's not a Jew. And don't go to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the, the ones who were kind of half Jewish. But, but this mission is simply to God's people from Old Testament days, the Israelites. So again, do you see how we're not going to be able to just apply it directly to ourselves? It's not as if mission nowadays is meant to be just to Israelites, is it? So that's the who, the where. What are they to do? What are these apostles to do? We'll see how the passage goes on. Verse 7. They're to do two things, really. They're to speak and they're to act. Verse 7, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
The first thing they're to be is preachers. This mission is going to be a preaching mi- uh, mission. Uh, and the, the message they're meant to preach is not simply just saying those sort of half dozen words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, if you like, is the title of the sermon. Uh, what they're to do is preach the, the message that Jesus has been preaching. That little phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that we've met twice before in Matthew's Gospel already. It's the exact phrase that John the Baptist was preaching back in Matthew 3. And it's the exact phrase that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, the point is, these apostles are to continue preaching the, the word of the gospel, just as Jesus has been doing, and just actually as John the Baptist had been doing beforehand. They're not to come up with their own message. They're not to update Jesus' message. They're to preach just what he has been preaching. But it's not just preaching, is it? It's verse 8, there's also action. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Again, those words, if we've been here before, should ring a bell. Uh, look, just at the end of chapter 9, just a few verses earlier, and Matthew's summary of what Jesus did. Chapter 9 and verse 35. Uh, Jesus was proclaiming the gospel, as it were, and healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, if we read all the way through chapter 9, we'd see him cleansing lepers, casting out demons. So, so the point is, these apostles are if you like, multiplying the ministry of Jesus. They're saying what Jesus said and doing what Jesus did. It's as if Jesus sort of multiplies himself 12 times to get 12 times as much work done. Uh, they are the extension, if you like, of the ministry of Jesus. So that's what they're doing. How are they to do it? Well, this is verses 9 and 10. They're to do it essentially relying on God to provide for his people. Uh, I don't think Jesus is quite saying that you're not allowed to, um, uh, to have any sandals, for example, uh, but rather, or any staff, you know, any walking stick, but rather you're not to sort of gather to yourself extra stuff. You're not to acquire them. The focus is not on walking around barefoot, uh, but rather on the, the disciples not, not going out on a money-making mission. They're not allowed two tunics, but they are presumably allowed one, as in fact is made clear in the other Gospels. What Jesus is trying to teach his, his disciples, his apostles, is that they must rely on God to provide. One of the ways he's going to provide is through his people. So when they get to a town or village, some, some people in that village will show them hospitality. The disciples don't have to refuse hospitality. It's not that they have to say, no, I must live outside or something. No, they can receive food and, and lodging. But they don't have to, in advance of going out on this mission, they pile up hordes of gold to make sure they've got enough money, pack a huge suitcase to make, they've got, make sure they've got enough spare clothes and warm jumpers. No, God will provide as the mission continues. Uh, in that sense, uh, the principle is there at the end of verse 8. You received without paying, so give without pay. You go and preach and heal, even if people can't afford to pay you. Uh, you, I, Jesus, haven't charged you for teaching you, so you don't charge others to teach them. You've received my ministry freely, so give my ministry freely. And why are they to do this? Final question. Well, it's there in verses 11 through 15. Uh, what are they doing? Why are they out on this mission? Well, they're there to gather God's people through his gospel. Uh, do you see how it works? They, they go to all these towns and villages... 
And, and, and when they do so, they'll find out who's worthy and who's unworthy. Now, I don't think that means they're going to find the sort of the nice people and the nasty people. Rather, you, the, the person who is worthy is someone who receives the disciples, the apostles, as Jesus' representatives, and therefore welcomes them, welcomes them into their home. So verse 12, if you enter a house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And it's, it's not like a magic word. It's not some sort of spooky, you know, I grant you peace, I don't grant you peace. But rather, the, the, the apostle comes into the village and preaches that the kingdom of God is here, Jesus is here, the Messiah is here. And if, if someone receives them in, in peace, yeah, come in, welcome, stay with us. Well, then that house will be blessed. But if they turn their back on you, well, verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, See, that's the definition of worthy, receiving the disciples and listening to their words. Then you're to shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That's a strange expression, is it, children? Shake off the dust from your feet. What's going on there? Uh, what if you've ever been abroad? Have you ever been abroad? To another country. When you come back in, you have to show a passport. When you come into England again, you have to show a passport to say, yeah, I, I live here. Okay, this is where I live. And the person on the, you know, the... the, the Customs officer, the guy on the desk will say, have you bought anything abroad? Anything, anything abroad that you're not allowed to bring into the country? So you're not allowed to bring in a snake you found in Africa or a monkey in the jungle, or whatever it might be. You're not allowed to bring certain things into the country. So you've got to show your passport. You've got to say, I haven't brought anything back. And if you were, well, if you were an Israelite back in Jesus' day and you've been outside the country, the other thing you'd have to do, and it's really strange, isn't it? But the other thing you'd have to do is you'd have to take off your shoe and you'd have to brush all the dirt off it. All the sand and the dust from all the other countries that's been on the bottom of your shoe, you'd have to shake off. Now, why do they do that? Well, the Jews thought of their nation as a holy nation. In fact, God told them it was a holy nation, although he didn't tell them to do the the dust-shaking thing. And and the other nations were were seen as unclean. So so when the Jews came into their own country from being abroad, perhaps in Egypt or, or somewhere else, they would shake their sandals off, all the dirt off their shoes, to say, well, I'm, I'm moving from an unclean country to a clean country, from outside of God's people to inside God's people. But the extraordinary thing here, and this would have been shocking for the disciples to hear, I think, is that the disciples on this mission are, are only going, do you remember, inside God's people. They're saying, in Israel. So, so essentially what they're saying is, or what Jesus is saying, is even within the Israelites, God's people, right from the days of Abraham, even within that group, some are really God's people and some aren't. Some houses you'll go to, even though they're located in Israel, have become like the Gentiles, like the unbelievers, because they've rejected me. Now, that's why I said that the mission, that the why question, is that the disciples, the apostles, are to gather God's people through his gospel. It's no longer just being an Israelite that makes you part of God's people. If you're an Israelite, you might have been brought up in Israel, circumcised, go to the temple, keep all the food laws. But if you reject Jesus as king, you're not part of his people, Jesus is saying. If you're like, Jesus is the one who defines who is in and who is out. That's why it's such a serious matter. It's just a small, seems like a small addition, verse 15, doesn't it? Just an offhand comment. But it's desperately serious. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. For a town that rejects Jesus, it's going to be more serious for them than even Sodom and Gomorrah, which are two towns in Genesis, which were were particularly wicked towns. We're not going to go into that story now, but they were towns that spectacularly 
disobeyed God, did terribly wicked things. And that would have been a huge shock. A town in Israel, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, yes. Why? Because they knew more. And that's, that's a, it's a really important principle in the Bible. The more you know, the more responsible you are. And these words should be very sobering to us. Although we, we haven't grown up Jewish, many of us, any of us possibly. But, but many of us have grown up or spent a lot of time inside, if you like, the, the church, inside God's people. And we've heard sermons, uh, we've been at Bible studies, we've read Christian books, we've gone along to the Christian Union. We've been taught lots. And therefore, if you like, the stakes are raised. The more you've been taught, the more serious it is if we walk away and reject Christ. John, this is really important for you. Uh, as you grow up, it's important that you follow Jesus, stay with him, because you've been taught so much. Your parents and from church and from Sunday school. It's a wonderful blessing to be taught all about Christ and what he's done for us. But therefore, be even more serious if you walk away. So imagine, uh, I'm going to imagine a, a, a mum and a boy. A mum has a little baby boy. And the mum thinks, well, I can't look after him. So she puts him up for adoption. And he's adopted. And he never knows his mum. He grows up. Uh, he does well for himself. He buys his own house. And one snowy winter, there's a knock on the door. And it's an old lady. She knocks on the door and says, it's cold. I haven't got any food. Please, can I come in? And he says, no. And slams the door in, his fa- in her face. Uh, little did he know that that was his mother. Now, that's a bad thing to do, isn't it? Shut the door, poor old lady, on the doorstep. That is a bad thing to do. But imagine the same boy, except this time he isn't put up for adoption. Instead, this time his mum does bring him up. As she works every hour of the day to look after him, to feed him, to clothe him. She stays up all night when he's sick. She gives him all his money, all her money, so he can go and buy his own house. And imagine the same thing happens. It's a snowy winter's day. And the... the he, the door, rat-a-tat-tat, he opens it up and he sees his mother and he notices his mother and she says, I'm starving, I haven't got any food, son. Can I come in? And he says, no, and slams the door. Well, that would be even worse, wouldn't it? But both stories, the man's done the same thing. He's shut the door in an old lady's face. But it's somehow even worse in the second one because of all he knows about his mother. He knows what she's done for her, him. He knows how much she's cared for him. And yet still... He turns her back on her. That's kind of what's going on here. It's even worse for these people who've grown up knowing all about God from the Old Testament to then turn their back on God's king. So, having asked those five questions about that, who, what, where, how and why, I hope we're going to see that this is not quite Jesus sending the disciples out on a kind of world mission trip. In some ways, this would be more like Jesus sending his 12 apostles to England nowadays. See, if we just send the 12 apostles to England nowadays and go around preaching in every village and town, what they would do is they would first of all gather those who already know the gospel. Because England is full of people who do know Jesus and full of people who don't know Jesus. It's a mixed place. That is different from sending the 12 apostles to a country where literally nobody's got a clue. Imagine a country, an island, that's never heard of Jesus at all, never read the Bible, never heard the Old Testament, no idea at all. That is different from this situation. Here, Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles to gather the lost sheep of Israel 
as he calls them in verse 6. It is a mission to, to find the believers. It's easy to think that in Jesus' day, no one believed apart from, I don't know, the 12 disciples or something. But that's not the case, is it? Several times in, in the Gospels, we, we read of people who are faithful believers. They believe all the stuff they were taught in the Old Testament. Think of Anna in Luke's Gospel, or Simeon, the faithful priest in the temple, or even Mary, Jesus' mother. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, there are faithful Israelites around the place. This, if you like, is sending the, the good news that Jesus is here out to them. So, if that's what's happened then, what, what are the lessons for us? What, what does it mean for us? Well, let me go through those questions again and try and answer them in a way you know, what, that, that shows us what would a mission-minded church look like nowadays? We're not going to be doing exactly the same mission as the disciples. We're not going to be sent as Jesus' authoritative apostles to Israel. But God's people are sent. So let's whip through those questions again and see what lessons we can learn uh, if we want to be a mission-minded church. That who question. Who, who is sent to do ministry and mission nowadays? Well, the apostles are gone, aren't they? they they've gone, they've, they've died, and there are no more apostles in the sense that we meet in Matthew 10. So what happened? Okay, as the Bible story unpacks, what happened? Did they, did they create a new generation of apostles? Did, did Matthew, as he got old, say, right, you know, I'm going to make you the next apostle? And so on down the line. Well, no, not at all. Instead of making apostles, what we see is that the apostles appoint ministers or pastors in various churches that they plant uh, around, well, around the Mediterranean, where most of them, at least the ones we know about, went. The next generation of mission and of caring for God's sheep is carried out not by new apostles, but rather by just ordinary men who are appointed as elders. Uh, this has actually always been a, uh, predicted uh, in the Old Testament. Can you tell me, just, just keep your finger in Matthew's Gospel, but flick back to, to Jeremiah, book of Jeremiah and chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, so Isaiah, then Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, page 650 in the Church Bibles. And Jeremiah is ministering at a time when those who were meant to shepherd and care for God's people in Israel were not doing a good job. You can pick that up from his words. Look at verse 23. Woe to, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Now, children, he's not talking about actual shepherds there who look after sheep. The shepherds are the leaders of God's people, the elders, the rulers. And Jeremiah says, woe to them. They're destroying the sheep. They're not caring for them, feeding them. So God's going to do something, verse 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock, driven them away, you've not attended to them. Behold, I'll attend to you for all your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be, multiply, uh, they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall be any be missing, declares the Lord. God's, the, the, the leaders, the, those who were shepherds over God's people in the days of Jeremiah, were doing a bad job. They didn't care for the people. They weren't feeding. They weren't teaching God's word. They were being disobedient. Now, sometimes when other prophets make that critique, God says, I'm going to send one great shepherd to gather them back together. And he means Jesus. That's why Jesus comes and says, I'm the good shepherd. 
So he's the, he's the, the king shepherd, if you like, the top shepherd. But interestingly, in Jeremiah, God is predicting that he'll send lots of shepherds. Now, the lots of shepherds can't all be Jesus, obviously. There's only one Jesus. He's the great shepherd. But Jeremiah is promising, or rather God is promising through Jeremiah, that actually in the, the new covenants it's called, the New Testament, he will appoint loads of shepherds to care for God's people. I think that's fulfilled, first of all, in the apostles. But ultimately, the people who are called shepherds in the New Testament are the pastors. The word shepherd and pastor is the same word. So in the letter of Peter, 1 Peter 5, talks about just local, ordinary church leaders as pastors or shepherds of God's people. So a a church that cares about mission is also going to care about raising up pastors or elders or shepherds for churches. It's not just a case of running around headlong doing evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. Evangelism is important, we're going to get there in a sec. But it's important too to appoint godly leaders in God's church. And now's not the time to explain how that works, all the other sort of details. But for us, particularly if you're a regular here, please pray that God would raise up elders within Christchurch Central Leeds. Shepherds. This whole passage was introduced uh, by Jesus saying that we should pray. Verse 38 of chapter 9, the last verse of chapter 9, pray earnestly the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Please be praying that the Lord would raise up elders, pastors for our own church and that we can help send elsewhere. Uh, The who, in terms of the shepherding leading role, I think is passed on to elders and ministers. It's not that church members don't do evangelism and mission at all, not at all. Part of the work of the the ministers and the elders is to help all of God's people serve. But still, uh, the New Testament uh, sees a significance in appointing people to special offices uh, within the church. And it might well be that some of you have the desire to, to do that formal ministry role, and that is a good thing. Paul says it, that it's a good thing if man desires that elder role. So there's the who. What about the where? Well, Matthew Gospels ends with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go to all nations. He sends the apostles out to all nations. Uh, a missional church will be concerned about the whole world. And again, that's something we need to put in place in increasing measure here at Christchurch Central. Uh, we ought to give some of our resources, not just so that we can fulfil our little mission here in Leeds, but so that the gospel can go to the ends of the earth. No church should be concerned just about their backyard. The mission has now gone global. Uh, what are we to do? Well, we're not apostles, so we're not going to do exactly the same as the apostles. And again, it's very interesting, when the apostles commission the next generation, so when Paul uh, commissions Timothy as an elder... He doesn't tell Timothy to raise the dead and cleanse lepers and heal the sick. Timothy is to preach the word. Now, there's even a hint that for the apostles, the mission changes somewhat. Again, at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus sends these same 12, minus Judas, I suppose, 11 of them, out to the nations, he gives them a slightly different charge. He tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. And how are they to make disciples? Well, they do two things. They baptise in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and they teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Jesus doesn't repeat the heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Now the apostles do do that a little bit in the book of Acts. But, but that, the key to wait, if you like, is on the teaching and preaching. And that is what we inherit. Because we're not apostles, we can't do what the apostles did. We can't raise the dead. 
We can pray that God would heal the sick and cleanse lepers, and he may do. It's not that God can't act miraculously anymore. It's simply that no human being on earth has the authority, just to, as Paul did or Peter did, just to say, take up your mat and walk. When you read the book of Acts, the apostles are able to do, in many ways, what Jesus could do, because they are his authentic representatives. We can't do that. No man on earth can do that nowadays. We pray that God might heal, but that's very different to saying that we raise the dead or heal the sick. And so a missional church is going to be about preaching the gospel of Jesus to the nations. The king is here. Jesus has come. He's God's king. He's died for our sins and he's opened up the gates of eternal life. That is the gospel message that is to go out. And that's why churches that are committed to mission, I think New Testament biblical mission, have that evangelism at the forefront. It is good to do all sorts of things. And we, we do. We give money to help care for the poor and the sick. That's part of what we do here at Christchurch. But if you like, the, the point, the pointy edge of mission, the sharp focus, the front, is always speaking about Christ. How do we do it? Well, there's a great balance here. There's basically one command for here, I think, for, for me at the moment, and one command for everybody else. For, for anyone who's in full-time ministry work, well, I think our job is not to worry about money, not to sort of charge for our services, but rather just to do what you're told. Okay, you've been received freely, verse 8, give without pay. Uh, ministers or missionaries aren't to be obsessed with earning money. There's a terrible article in one of the newspapers recently about a, a minister down in London, and the Charities Commission have just busted him. Uh, he used £120,000 of church funds to throw himself a birthday party. Uh, he, he used money given by church to buy himself an £80,000 uh, Mercedes. He, he earned £6.3 million a year. And even the world can see that's terrible. Isn't that an embarrassment to the church? We're nowhere near that here, I should say. <laughs> but, but, but the minister's job is not to be concerned about money, but rather to get on with the work. But those who are receiving the ministry, well, their job is to provide for those who are teaching them. Uh, we should have a concern that those who are given this particular job of preaching are able to do so without distraction. That's why often... Ministers, are, are, um, ministers don't have salaries, they have stipends. You often hear people talk about stipends rather than salaries. It's not that you, you pay a minister or a, a sort of full-time church worker or a missionary. It's not as if you pay them wages in exactly the same way. Rather, you provide enough for them that they can do the work without worrying that they're going to be sleeping outside or freezing to death or their kids aren't going to have clothes or whatever. So you see the balance? The worker himself gets on with just doing the work and everyone else makes sure they're provided for. So again, that's why it's so important that we're a giving church, not just my personal benefit. Okay, I'm not going to be buying Mercedes or throwing £120,000 worth of birthday parties for myself. And if I do, you need to sack me. But, but rather so that we can provide for ministry here and further afield. Because God has given us freely Christ, well, so we give our own resources freely in return to enable that gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And why? Well, as we close, really it's the same reason. Judgment is coming. Everybody is going to die. Verse 15, everyone will face judgment one day. And none of us deserve heaven and all of us deserve hell. And the only remedy, the only rescue is that, well, that Christ has come, that he's lived the life we should have lived and died in our place. And so the way into heaven is not by being good, it's not by being religious, it's not even by turning up to church week by week, it's rather by saying, Lord, forgive me. 
I put my trust in Christ alone to save me. Mission is driven by a consciousness of eternity. Every day, people are dying and, and facing judgment, and eternity depends on it. That's why it's so important we pray for workers for the harvest field. That's why these little events we're beginning to organise are so important. Pray that friends would come along. That's why it's so important that we give and resource and equip so that Christ's kingdom will be filled and heaven's halls will be full of praise. Let's pray that Christ does that in Leeds and beyond.